Our scripture readings this morning come from two sources. First is the book of Ecclesiastes, and then we'll follow up with a couple of verses from Isaiah. So if you're looking in the Pew Bibles, page 648 is where you will find Ecclesiastes chapter 3. Some of you may regard this as fairly familiar. It was a well-known folk song back in the day. Ecclesiastes chapter 3. For everything there is a reason, a right time for every intention under heaven, a time to be born and a time to die, a time to plant and a time to uproot, a time to kill and a time to heal, a time to tear down and a time to build, a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance, a time to throw stones and a time to gather stones, a time to embrace and a time to refrain, a time to search and a time to give up, a time to keep and a time to discard, a time to tear and a time to sow, a time to keep silent and a time to speak, a time to love and a time to hate, a time for war and a time for peace. What does the worker gain from his efforts? I have seen the task God has given humanity to keep us occupied. He has made everything suited to its time. Also, he has given human beings an awareness of eternity, but in such a way that they can't fully comprehend from beginning to end the things that God does. I know that there is nothing better for them to do than to be happy and enjoy themselves as long as they live. Still, the fact that everyone can eat and drink and enjoy the good that results from all his work is a gift of God. I know that whatever God does will last forever. There is nothing to add or subtract from it, and God has done it so that people will fear him, that which was is here already, and that which will be has already been. But God seeks out what people chase after. Another thing I observed under the sun, there in the same place as justice was wickedness. There in the same place as righteousness was wickedness. I said to myself, the righteous and the wicked God will judge because there is a right time for every intention and for every action. Concerning people, I said to myself, God is testing them so that they will see that by themselves they are just animals. After all, the same things that happen to people happen to animals. The very same thing. Just as the one dies, so does the other. Yes, their breath is the same so that humans are no better than animals, since nothing matters anyway. They all go to the same place. They all come from dust. They all return to dust. Who knows if the spirit of a human being goes upward and the spirit of an animal goes downward into the earth. So I concluded that there is nothing better for a person to do than take joy in his activities, that that is his allotted portion. For who can enable him to see what will happen after him? Thank God for Isaiah. Chapter 
60, verses 8 and 9. That's on your pew Bibles in page 723. Who are these that fly along like clouds, like doves to their nests? Surely the islands look to me. In the lead are the ships of Tarshish, bringing your children from afar with their silver and gold. For the honor of the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, for he has endowed you with splendor. Father, we're so blessed by the bounty you have given to us. And it is it's really good that we need to be reminded from time to time. In fact, we need to be reminded every day of your sovereignty over everything, that despite all the vicissitudes and the difficulties we struggle with in this life, your will and your purposes for us are made evident and are worked out through your purposes, through your will. We just are so thankful for that. Father, we ask that the message that you have given to Pastor Mark to bring to us today will encourage us, embolden us to proclaim your love for us and our love for those around us, the way we care for each other as you've commanded us to do. We ask your blessing on Pastor Mark as he brings the message this morning. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, Ron. When God, God's word written in the Holy Scriptures, warns us that the Christian life and the Christian ministry are a battle against our own flesh, against worldliness, and even against cosmic beings. We should, be we should believe God's word. Deuteronomy 32, verses 47 and 48 tell us in summary, these are not idle words to you, they are your life. When God's word warns us that the Christian life and the Christian ministry are summed up in the words and actions embodied in the person of Jesus Christ, by denying ourselves, taking up our crosses daily and following after him, we, we should believe him. When God's word expired by the Holy Spirit into the life and pen of the apostle, the one closest to Jesus and the one who outlived them all, warns us that the Christian life and Christian ministry will be an ongoing battle against the world, that aspect of original sin that inclines us towards self-will, self-aggrandizement, personal privilege and ambition, and insecurity when we're, we aren't able to get or do those things for ourselves, we should believe him. John tells us in his first letter do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life, is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. 
In his third chapter, he goes on to say, Do not be surprised, brothers and sisters, that the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers and the sisters. Whoever does not love abides in death. In chapter 5, verse 4, for everyone who has been born of God has been overcome, for everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the son of God? When the world, uh, I'm sorry, when God's word expired by the Holy Spirit into the life and pen of that other apostle, the greatest, the most zealous, and yet the least among them, warns us that the Christian life, and especially the Christian ministry, will be an ongoing mortal battle against the devil, that enemy of God and man, who seeks the total destruction, humiliation, and eternal enslavement of humanity and the dethroning of the one true and living God, we should believe him. For we do not wrestle with flesh and blood, but against the rulers and against the authorities and against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenlies. When God expired, when, when God's word expired by the Holy Spirit into the life and pen of that same apostle, warns us that the Christian life, and especially the Christian ministry, will be an ongoing battle against our very own flesh. That aspect of original sin that inclines us toward rebellious rather than righteous action, we should believe him. As happens from time to time, we get reminded of this very biblical, very Christian, very humbling truth. It really is an unavoidable aspect of the true Christian life and ministry. We also get reminded that we have no resources in and of ourselves to engage in this ongoing battle, for the battle is the Lord's. So whether from our own flesh, the world, or the devil, we rarely can see the next avenue of assault in this oncoming battle against us. And even when we can see it, we so often are unable to get prepared and marshal the resources to respond well or satisfactorily. The one thing we must be aware of concerning this ongoing and never ending in this life battle is the shared effect of flesh, world, and devil to divide us against one another, and if it was possible, even to separate us from God, his love, his presence, and his purposes. In such moments, I am so thankful for the humble transparency of the Apostle Paul when he writes in Romans chapter 7 and 8, I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging a war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? 
But thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord, so that I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. But since Christ's work on the cross was finished and our justification secured in and by his resurrection, we find it in chapter 8, beginning in verse 1, there is therefore, because of the work of Christ and because of the resurrection of Christ from the dead, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, none for any person who is in Christ, none. For the law of the spirit of life has set us free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. In order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Paul's whole point in writing these words is that it's only by God's grace through the presence and power of his Holy Spirit that he or anyone after him is able to live the Christian life and certainly conduct any fruitful Christian ministry. And the key to understanding, to believing, and especially to living out this truth for really real in the Christian life and in the Christian ministry is to remember it, to acknowledge it, and to repeatedly applying it quickly and freely, yes, to ourselves, and especially for each other. We all need grace. I'd like to pray my custom version of the old Anglican prayer before we continue on. God, our Father, by your Spirit, our Lord, what we know not, teach us. What we have not, give us. What we are not, make us. What we need not, protect us, and where we have fallen short, forgive us. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, last week I introduced you to this excellent book, Future Israel, Why Christian Anti-Judaism Must Be Challenged, by Barry E. Horner. And I mentioned that Moshe, Moshe Rosen, a very well-known and well-respected Jewish Christian or Messianic Jew, a Bible scholar, wrote an endorsing forward to the book. And it's as short as it is jarring, both of which are reasons to share it. Quote, to be perfectly blunt, I must say the Christians have robbed the Jews. And perhaps what is worse is that this thievery has been encouraged by theologians, pastors, and even Sunday school teachers where small children are taught to sing the song, every promise in the book is mine, every chapter, every verse, every line. 
Every promise in Scripture in some way benefits Christians, but it is not all promised to Christians. Sometimes the thievery has been inadvertent and unintentional. It's like thinking the raincoat hanging in the office closet is yours for wearing home because of an unexpected shower. Hopefully you will discover the raincoat belongs to a fellow worker and you will restore it. (laughs) It is not as if Christians do not have the greatest promise of God, which is 1 John 2 and verse 25. And this is the promise that he hath promised us, even eternal life. Barry Horner, the writer of this volume, is a theologian who furnishes evidence of this identity theft and the false claim that the church inherited all the promises of Israel. Not only that, he demonstrates how by restoring the election of God or the chosenness to the Jewish people, the church is even more blessed. And this is really, I'm I'm sharing this with you to get to this paragraph. The Jewish people represent current historical evidence of the Bible's complete trustworthiness. Every living Jewish person, no matter what he believes, no matter what he observes, no matter whether or not he cares, is evidence that the God of the Bible is and that he keeps his word. Israel may be blinded in part, yet there is a glorious destiny to be fulfilled, and that glorious destiny is a light and a blessing to the church of today and tomorrow. Wow. What an important correction to how we in the church more generally address the promises of God in Christ Jesus to and through God's people, Israel, the Jewish people. We almost always cut out the middleman, that is, Israel and the Jewish people, and go directly to God and us. As we look to the fulfillment of God's promises to biblical Christians and biblical Christian churches looking to follow Jesus Christ, we must recover a biblical and theological balance. Even God's promises that we biblical Christians and we biblical churches can confidently claim from the Old Testament, all of them, or or very nearly all of them, almost all of them, were made to God's people Israel first. And not only that, many of God's promises to us, his people, the church, come to us and are fulfilled for us in and through God's people Israel. As the time of Christ's return grows nearer, and we know that it's growing nearer because we're, you know, 2,000 years from when Jesus was here the first time around, and each day gets us nearer to that day, we can be confident that this relationship of God in Christ Jesus and his people Israel will be resurgent. Call it a revival if you must. Even as the proper relationship of God's people Israel to God's people, the church will be recapitulated, re-emphasized, renewed, restored, restrengthened, and redoubled. That's about all the R-E words I could think of in a moment. Finally, one of the great truths of the New Testament is that the ongoing promise of the gospel comes to us and to the world through the Jews, namely in Messiah Jesus. 
And the gospel of Jesus Christ is for the Jews first and also for the Gentile, meaning the rest of the world. In John chapter 4, Jesus said to the Samaritan woman at the well, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You, speaking to her representationally of the Samaritans, you worship what you do not know. We, speaking representationally to himself, to the Jews, to Jesus' faith group or discipleship community, we worship what we know. For salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming, and is now here, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. Not only does this salvation come from the Jews, but the gospel of Jesus Christ itself is for the Jews first, and also, meaning secondarily, for the Greeks or the non-Jewish Gentiles, that is, everybody else in the world. And our emphasis in ministries of worship, word, fellowship, and outreach should reflect this in some discernible way. How and how much is a matter of discernment by the Spirit as we go along, but at least we have a starting point. And, and we could use as a very good starting point this most familiar passage when Paul puts it this way in Romans 1, verses 16 and 17, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it, that is the gospel, is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first, and also to the Greek, the Gentile. For in it, that is in the gospel, which is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, for in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. In what must have been a prophetic utterance, as well as an historical observation, though Paul is not known as a prophet, and Romans is not known as a prophetic book. Nevertheless, we read in chapter 11, verses 28 to 33, as regards the gospel, they, speaking of Israel and the Jews, as regards the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. But as regards election, that is God's choosing, his sovereign choosing, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. Verse 29 just blows me away. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. For just as you, that is Gentile Christians in the church, just as you were at one time disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of their disobedience, there was an opening made for Gentiles when the Jews rejected Jesus as Messiah, verse 31, so they too have now been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you, they also may now receive mercy. Verse 32 is another one. For God has consigned all to disobedience, that he may have mercy on all. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Okay, so... This would seem an excellent place to consider the central truth of our message for this morning. 
Once again, it's there in the inside upper left corner of your bulletin. I'll just read it one more time since we already did so earlier. God in Christ Jesus has made and he will make everything beautiful in his time, especially the place and people of his eternal promise, beginning with Jerusalem and the Jewish people and then extending through the church to the whole world. I hope you still have your Bibles open to the prophecy of Isaiah chapter 60. That's Isaiah chapter 60. If you're using one of our pew Bibles, you'll find that Isaiah 60 still begins on page 723. And I'll be reading from uh, my ESV English Standard Version uh, Bible. You've got 1984 New International Versions there in the pews, but I, I don't think there's that much of a difference that will be distracting, at least not too much to you. We'll spend the next several minutes in verses 8 and 9 of Isaiah 60, and then we'll turn to Ecclesiastes 3, which isn't all that easy to read, so thank you, Ron. In his excellent commentary on the prophecy of Isaiah, now retired Pastor Ray Ortland Jr., and it's a fantastic commentary, by the way, he includes a portion of a letter that one of his congregants sent him a couple years ago. Quoting now. This is from page 396, I think, of his commentary. 395. In the last week or so, this is his congregant writing to him, in the last week, of so, week or so, I have not wanted to turn on the television news or read every article in the paper as I usually do. The world is too ugly and disturbing. Humiliation over the prisoner abuse in Iraq, so this is dated 20 years ago. Fear of the future as we deal with terrorists who openly behead an American for broadcast viewing. Solicitations for pornography constantly coming into our inboxes. Upside down morality that elevates tolerance over all else. And then I look into my own heart and see the materialism and criticism and lust. All of this to say, I can't imagine I am the only one who is particularly struck by the darkness and depravity of our world. We can easily feel so hopeless about the world we live in and the future we face. Ray's response, taken from the Holy Scriptures and mostly from Isaiah 59 and 60, to us in his commentary, I'm sure he didn't <laughs> send us back to his, well, maybe he did, I don't know. Are you aware that the Bible records many prophecies of a day when the gospel will wash over the whole world under an outpouring of the Holy Spirit? God has committed himself to the future of this world. His grace will triumph permanently and universally. And the races and the cultures of this world have a place of honor in God's plan. We have a reason to expect opposition. That reason is the word of God. Remember Genesis 12 where the gospel begins? God promises that in Christ all the nations of the earth will be blessed. 
How could it be otherwise? The goodness of God is of a spreading nature. Christianity is not a private preference. It's an uncontainable power for world renewal. Jesus said, I am the light of the world, John 8, 12, and light by its nature illuminates everything around. Even so, the gospel will brighten the world. And here in Isaiah 60, verses 8 and 9, we have a future picture of the world beginning to come. I guess maybe I should say the picture continues of the world beginning to come, not to Canada or to the United States or even to the church per se. The peoples of the world, the nations of the world, and their most treasured, valuable belongings and gifts are coming to Zion, specifically to Jerusalem, to Israel, and to God's people, the very place the Lord Yahweh has chosen to reside in and among for eternity future. Look with me there at verse, well, yeah, let's, let's look at verse 8. I'll, I'll just read the verse and Outside of its context, it really doesn't make much sense. You wonder, what on earth is that about? You could tell that it's probably metaphorical, but what is it pointing to? And that's the question. Verse 8, who are these that fly like a cloud and like doves to their windows? So it would really be better if we could connect 8 to verses 4 through 7. And so I'll read them in just a second because there's some movement going on here. There are people who are in one place and they are moving to another place and they are moving to another place for a reason. And that other place that they are moving to is Jerusalem. The former and future place of God's residence on the earth. And so this is both historical and prophetic. And let's look at the movement that I'm talking about that, that, that kind of coalesces in verse 8, but it starts in verse 4. Lift up your eyes all around and see. They all gather together. They come to you. They, they would be the nations, the peoples. They all gather together. They come to you. Again, we have to figure out what the you is, and we'll get, that, get to that in just a minute. Your sons shall come from afar, and your daughters shall be carried on the hip. Then you will see and be radiant. Think about that for a second. Wouldn't it be great to be radiant? Now, I know from time to time we see somebody who walks through, the, through, through a door and you think, that's a radiant person. I don't think anybody's ever said that about me. It's okay. God still loves me. Then you shall see and be radiant. Your heart shall thrill and exult because the abundance of the sea shall be turned to you. The wealth of the nation shall come to you. A multitude of camels shall cover you, the young camels of Midian and Ephah. All those from Sheba shall come. They shall bring gold and incense and shall bring good news, the praises of Yahweh. All the flocks of Kedar shall be gathered to you. The rams of Nebaioth shall minister to you. They shall come up with acceptance on my altar and I will beautify my beautiful house. See, there's movement moving from one place. In fact, from all places to this mutual 
or shared center. You see it? They're all coming from wherever they are, bringing whatever they can that's most valuable to them to this one place, and the one place is Jerusalem. The very center of God's activity on the earth by his sovereign choice. And we know that because of verses 10 through 14. And this is next week, okay, so spoiler alert. If you don't want to know what next week is about, just go da da la 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 so long as I'm talking, and then maybe you'll miss it. So, but, but this is it, verses 10 through 14. Still you, by this time I can tell you, you is Zion, which as we said last week is both a metaphorical concept the, the place of God's presence, but it's also a ge- geographical location. And its ultimate ge- geographical location is the Holy of Holies in the temple of God, which will be us in the future, beyond this life, in the new heavens and the new earth. So the you is Zion, Jerusalem, Israel. Verse 10, foreigners shall build up your walls. Okay, so that gives us a pretty good hint, right? And their kings shall minister to you. For in my wrath I struck you, but in my favor I have had mercy on you. Your gates shall be opened continually. Day and night they shall not be shut. That people may bring to you the wealth of the nations with their kings led in procession. For nation and kingdom that will not serve you shall perish. Those nations shall be utterly laid waste. The glory of Lebanon shall come to you, the cypress, the plain, and the pine, to beautify the place of my sanctuary, and I will make the place of my feet glorious. The sons of those who afflicted you shall come bending low to you, and all who despised you shall bow down at your feet. Here it is. They shall call you the city of Yahweh. The Zion, the place of residence, the place of planting, of the Holy One of Israel. So now we've got a sense of that movement that's coming from all over the world to this one central place called Zion, also called Jerusalem, also called Israel, also called the temple of the Lord. All are coming in this same to the same place from different directions. I almost said in the same direction, but if they did that, that'd be a mess, wouldn't it? They're all coming to this central location called Zion, the Zion of the Holy One of Israel. And so what about the clouds? Verse 8. Who are these that fly like a cloud and like doves to their windows? Well, we find out in the next verse, but it's, it's ships. The picture is, immediate picture is ships that are moving on still water so easily that they're not even making a sound. They're not even encountering any sort of jostling, jostling or turbulence. They're coming easily to Zion, to Israel, to Jerusalem. In fact, they're coming so easily with such little turbulence, if any at all, that they look like clouds coming in on the water. So, 
are these that fly like a cloud? And I, so I just I want to get prophetic here for a second. Can I do that? So now, ships are not, you know, the preferred mode of transportation. In 700 BC or so, when this was written, 700 years before Christ-ish, ships were, were the best you got. We've talked about camels. We talked about camels last week or the week before. Ships were the best you had. Well, now that's no longer true, is it? Now, if you're hauling, you know, big loads, sure, still ships might, be, might work. But for people, the nations, the peoples that, that are being talked about here, it's airplanes, right? Don't miss this. I'm not trying to get weird here or anything, but who are these that fly like a cloud? Right? I don't know. Could be a prophet seeing planes come in and like doves to their windows. And the point here is that they're coming so easily, so gladly, so eagerly, that there's no resistance, there's, there's total freedom. It's like a cloud floating on the whims of the wind without any sort of resistance. Verse 9. For the coastlands shall hope for me. So we probably do have uh, a good enough understanding of geometry to know that Israel is on a coastland, right? Israel is on the east, southeast edge of the Mediterranean Sea and has always been a coastal country right there in its place, Palestine, southeastern corner, if I can say it that way, uh, of the Mediterranean Sea. And so here we've got this, a statement that these coastlands shall hope for me. Well, who is me? Well, all along, the Lord Yahweh has been speaking through the prophet Isaiah. Look at verse 1. And the glory of Yahweh has risen upon you. Verse 2. But the Lord Yahweh will arise upon you. Verse 6, halfway at the end of verse 6. And shall bring good news, the praises of Yahweh. And uh, so, so we know who me is. Me is the speaker. And me is not Isaiah. Me is Yahweh, the Lord. Or we might even say the Lord God, because we see him in just a minute, um, referred to as the Lord God, Yahweh Elohim. Um, so the coastlands shall hope for me, the ships of Tarshish first, to bring your children from afar, their silver and gold with them. So Tarshish is uh, from, from Syria, and it's bringing down whatever goods uh, that Tarshish has. And here it, it mentions specifically bringing your children from afar. They may have gone into, into um, um, a diaspora of sorts. They may have been dispersed. Uh, they may have been taken uh, as hostages in war or in exiled or exiled, but, but your children will come back is the point here, right? And their silver and gold, they will bring with them, maybe in terms of recompense or compensation, but, but more so it's worship, bringing 
worship to the God of Israel, to Zion, where he has chosen to place his residence. Why? Why is all this happening? Well, that's the last couple of uh, lines in verse 9. For the name of the Lord your God, the name of Yahweh Elohim, because of the way the language works, it's probably Yahweh Elohe. Um, and for the Holy One of Israel, that's a direct reference to Messiah, a direct reference we know to Jesus Christ, because he has made you beautiful. Now, this is kind of, this is kind of an interesting little, it's not a controversy exactly, it's a, it's, it's a conversation about who he is. When we read there, because he has made you beautiful, who is he? Is that Yahweh Elohim, or is that the Holy One of Israel? Who is Jesus? Well, if we allow ourselves to go to the New Testament and take in all of that and look back, we discover that the salvation of the people in the Old Testament is exactly the salvation that is available to those in the New Testament and following. That in the middle, Old Testament, New Testament, in the middle is Christ. God's chosen, God's anointed, God's gift to humanity and all creation. Jesus Christ is in the middle as the mediator between God and man, both for those in the Old Testament who are looking forward in faith and also for those in the New Testament who are looking backwards in faith. Both trusting the Lord God to fulfill his promise to save us. And that salvation comes from the Jews. He is the Holy One of Israel, and because he because he has made you beautiful, who's he talking to? Jerusalem, Zion, Israel the place of God's sovereign presence. And you know that I've extended this also, and I don't think this is uh, any um, thing to be quibbled with. I've extended this also to his whole people because we know in the book of Revelation, there are several other references in the New Testament, that in that day when the new heavens and the new earth are here and we have glorified bodies and we have no longer sin anymore, that God will place his presence among and in his people. For there will be no longer a temple because we will stand in the presence of God forever. He has made you beautiful by the blood of Jesus, by the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. Through your faith, you have been made beautiful. Beautiful. Now turn with me to Ecclesiastes chapter 5, chapter 3, sorry. I just want to look at 9 through 11. Really, my point is verse 11. But the writer of Ecclesiastes, which we take to be Solomon, we believe it was probably Solomon. There's no direct reference to Solomon. 
Um, the preacher is the personal reference to the narrator here. Um, and most of the book of Ecclesiastes, as you might know, is written from a position of, shall we say, disappointment with God, uh, perhaps even unbelief. Um, and yet there are some glimmers of hope. And this happens to be one of them. When I first got here, there was a plan for the midweek Bible study to go through the book of Ecclesiastes. And I showed up on a first Wednesday and we had our books there and all that. And somebody asked the question, I think it's probably Shirley Mercer, do we have to do this? I said, we don't have to do anything. She said, it's just so sad. It's just so gloomy. The book of Ephesians just makes us, it just depresses us. We don't want to do that. So we didn't do it, and we went on to something else. But this is not depressing, this part, verses 9 through 13. What gain has the worker from his toil? I have seen the business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. Verse 11, he has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he has put eternity into man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end, meaning there is still mystery. Just because God has put eternity in our hearts doesn't mean that we know everything all of a sudden or ever. We don't. But he has made everything beautiful in its time. And so if, if I take that as it's stated at face value and I combine it with because he has made you beautiful, we, we can recognize that we are beautiful in God's sight. Whatever you see in the mirror, if you are in Christ, if you belong to God by adoption of the Holy Spirit, if you are one of God's children, if you are one, whether you come from the Jewish side or the Gentile side, and I think probably all of us, at least almost all of us, are from the Gentile side. If we're in Christ, we are beautiful in God's sight. And that's hard for me to believe. For me, not for you. For myself, I should say. But it's true. And why is it true? Because God's word is true, and God is true. And perhaps even more than that, if you can say it that way, God is good. God is good. You are beautiful. Jerusalem first, nation of Israel first, but applies to us too. For the Jew first, and also for the Greek. Let's pray together. God, our Father, we come before you once again as we come every Sunday to hear from you, to hope that we get a word from you that um, encourages us as we leave this place, as we go back to home and work every week. Lord, you have been so good to speak to us over the years that you've had a pulpit at Bethesda Church. Now almost, almost, almost 80 years, 79, and we'll enter our 80th year in July. I pray that you would continue to do that work among us, that you would continue to give us hearts and minds that are hungry for the word of God, that you would continue to join us here in this place as we gather as your people. 
We know that the church is not the building, even though our language doesn't help us here. We go to church. We, we're at church. Well, no, we are the church. And we gather as the church. And we disperse as the church back out into the world. So forgive our language. But we're so thankful that you have promised your personal presence and your power. I, I pray, Lord, that you would unite us these days not allow us to be divided against each other for any reason or by anything, that you would ask, uh, allow us to, to enjoy the purposeful unity that you enjoy in Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And because when Jesus prayed in John chapter 17, that's the standard of our unity that will make the world know that you love them and sent Jesus for them. Thank you for your ongoing grace toward us. In Jesus' name, amen.